Justin Shears and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. To get back sessions wrapping up with the famous rooftop concert on the 30th of January 1969, plus an extra day to capture the songs not performed on the roof, the Beatles could have been excused for not doing very much at all. Considering the angst associated with the early sessions, the get back film and album project ended relatively well. However, the hours of film footage and recorded material would be put on the back burner for now. The task of selecting and editing such a loose array of songs was far too much for the Beatles to contemplate at this point in time. Instead, each of the Beatles turned their attention to other projects, some personal, some for others. George dabbled in electronic music thanks to his purchase of a Moog 3P synthesizer, cutting-edge technology for the day. Ringo was away with Peter Sellers filming for The Magic Christian. Paul was busy writing, recording and producing the debut album for Welsh singer and Apple artist Mary Hopkin. Paul and George also helped out fellow Apple signing Jackie Lomax with his next batch of recordings. And John and Yoko were busy being, well, John and Yoko. But, despite the Beatles wanting to do their own thing separately, they were still a band. The Get Back Sessions had sown the seeds for many songs which would appear on a future album. The relative success of the Rooftop Concert had sparked some enthusiasm for working together in the studio again. A vital piece of the puzzle which had largely been absent from the Get Back Sessions was longtime producer George Martin. It was the last one we ever did. And I guess we all knew it was going to be the last one too because we'd gone through the trauma of Let It Be earlier than this. After Let It Be, I didn't want to work with the Beatles again. And I'm sure they didn't want to work with me. And I thought, what a sad end, you know. And I was pretty astonished when Paul rang me up one day and said, we want to get back into the studio and we want to make another album. I said, well, you do or they all do. We all do, you do. I said, well, look, Paul, I don't want to go back in the studio and do what we did before. If I'm going back, then I will have to do my job. You let me do my job. And it will have to be the way I produce it. He said, I've got no problem with that. I said, what about John? He said, no, he's, I've talked to him. He wants to come back and do it your way. So we went back into Abiro's studios and started recording. Well, I think the deal was that, you know, through Lenny... Let it be, it was like we, I left, and we got back on the basis that we've got to just finish it up, make it tidy. So I got back on that basis, then everybody decided, well, we ought to do one better album. The first song committed to tape for the Beatles' second LP in 1969 was John's I Want You, jammed a few times during the Get Back sessions. Written about Yoko with minimalist lyrics, the song describes Yoko as heavy, Late 1960s speak for anything from terribly serious to unbelievably excellent. We can only assume that John was using the term in a positive sense. I want you bracket, she's so heavy. It is, it, it gets sort of, it is very heavy. And um, it's John plays lead guitar and sings the same as he plays. And uh, this is good because he has, um, it's really basically a bit, like a blues, the riff that he sings and plays is really a very basic blues type thing. But again, it's very original sort of John type song. But you thought I'd written it. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I've got to admit that. Right? <laughs> uh, 
and the middle bit's great. John has a, an amazing thing with his timing. He always comes across with sort of different timing things, like, uh, example, all you need is love. Nothing you can do that can't be done. Dun, 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 nothing, dun, 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 which just sort of skips beats out and changes from three, four, three, four, 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 you know, all in and out of each other. But when you question him <laughs> as to what it is, he doesn't know, he just does it naturally. And once you try and pin it down, he, you know, and this has got, <coughs> the bridge section of this is a bit like that. It's got a really very good, um, chord sequence that he uses. Ironically, the first song recorded for the LP, which would become known as Abbey Road, was not even recorded there. Gathering at Trident Studios for a late night session on the 22nd of February 1969, the Beatles began laying down the basic tracks for the song, much to the annoyance of at least one member of the public. What's it a case of, Mr. Martin? Take four was very good up to the breakdown. Which was, was which, was, which was take four? And that was very good up to the very end bit there, when Paul did his little bit that wasn't quite right. My boys are ready to go. Okay. John? Yes? What? Is it possible without affecting yourselves too much to turn down a little? Apparently it's been a complaint. From who? What are they doing here at this time of night? Oh, guy, yeah. What guy? He's going the through the walls and complaining. Well, we'll try it once more at the yeah, very loud, yeah, right. and then if we don't get it, we'll try it quiet like it might do it the other way. Okay. The loud one, last go. Last chance to be loud. Who says? I can't quite see through these now. I just can't quite see them, they keep merging. One, two, three, one, two, three. five of the 35 takes of I Want You, in brackets, She's So Heavy, recorded between 8pm on the 22nd and 5am on the 23rd of February 1969. The final track would use an edit of several takes, with some groovy overdubs to be laid on later in the sessions. With George Martin resuming his regular role, Get Back Sessions producer Glyn Johns is also heard, asking John diplomatically to maybe turn the volume down a little. Interestingly, Glenn Johns had ensured that Ringo's drums were recorded across two separate tracks, bass drum on one and the rest of the kit on another, 
something which he had begun doing when recording for Get Back. To this point, Ringo's kit had only ever been recorded to a single track, often combined with bass and or guitars. George Harrison contributed two songs to Abbey Road, both of which are considered by many to be the finest of his entire career. He would also add a B-side to the mix, signs of the growing input he was providing. One of those songs had its genesis during the Get Back sessions, busked here by the Beatles on the 28th of January, with George seated at the piano instead of behind his guitar. Shoe, one of several songs George brought to the Get Back sessions, but once again only given cursory attention by the others. On the 25th of February 1969, his 26th birthday, George booked himself into Abbey Road Studios to record some demos for the upcoming album. I want a love that's right, but right is only half of what's wrong. I want a short-haired girl Sometimes was it twice as long I'm stepping out this old brown shoe Baby, I'm in love with you I'm so glad you came here Won't be the same now, I'm telling you You picked me up from worse and tried to drag me down Oh, when I see your smile replacing every thoughtless frown You got me escaping from this zoo Baby, I'm in love with you I 
I'm so glad you came here, it won't be the same now, I'm telling you. If I grow up, I'll be a singer. Wearing rings on every finger. Don't worry what they or you say. I live in love and maybe someday, who knows, baby, you may comfort me. The second of two takes of Old Brown Shoe, complete with guitar overdubs. Another of the demo tracks recorded by George on this day also had its first official airing during the Get Back sessions, and probably wasn't taken too seriously by John and Paul because of the traditionally unfinished nature of George's tunes. What inspired something, for example? Maybe Patty, probably. Really? I think I wrote, it, I wrote it at the time when um, we were making the last double album. And it's just the first line, something in the way she moved, which has been in millions of songs. It's not a special thing, but it um, just seemed quite apt. Just say whatever comes in the head each time attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. Yeah, but I've been through this one like for about six months. You haven't had 15 people joining in, though. No. I mean, just that line, I couldn't think of anything like a. Something in the way she 
it's got to have a bass line. When I wrote it, I imagined somebody like Ray Charles doing it. It's, you know, that's how I, the feel I imagined, but because I'm not Ray Charles, then, you know, I, I'm sort of much more limited in what I can do. Then it came out like this. It's nice. It's probably the, the nicest um, melody tune that I've written. Well, George started writing love songs, and then he, he went out a bit and wrote about other things. You know, like Taxman and, yeah, you know, and uh, Within You, Without You and all those songs. And this one is, is another uh, love song. It's a love song for me, George. And uh, it's just fantastic. There's nothing I can say about this. It's so great. George, in his latter years, wrote wonderful songs. And his best song has to be something. Something George's delightful studio demo for Something, recorded in a single take with electric guitar on the 25th of February 1969. A piano overdub added some bottom end to the recording. Also recorded on this day was a demo for All Things Must Pass, the future title track of his first solo LP. Both Old Brown Shoe and Something would be recorded officially by the Beatles in the coming weeks. 
While the Beatles may have been busy with their music in the first few months of 1969, there was also room for some more personal commitments. Paul, what's it feel like to be married at last? It feels fine, thank you. What are you going to do now? Is it going to change your life much, do you think? I don't know, really. I've never been married before. <laughs> the wedding was about an hour late starting. Everyone got a bit worried. What happened? We were waiting for my brother, who was going to be the best man, Mike, and uh, he was on British Railways, so he was a bit delayed because of the weather and stuff. Not a very nice day for you. Going away for a honeymoon? Maybe. We haven't talked about it yet, you know. It's just... Uh, it's you know, we haven't really made any plans for a honeymoon. I think we will no, in a uh, few days. Not. Mrs. McCartney, congratulations. <laughs> what does it feel like to have just married the, probably the, one of the most eligible bachelors in the world, with the envy of all the uh, ladies? Well, it feels great to be married. On the 12th of March, the last bachelor beetle married iconic American photographer Linda Eastman in a civil ceremony at Marylebone Registry Office then jetted off for a two-week honeymoon in Linda's native New York City, breaking the hearts of millions around the world in the process. Do you think you're going to lose any fans because you're married now? No, of course not. I don't know, I don't know. You ask them that, not me. They won't. Will he? Yeah. When you're ready, I've got to wait Okay, great. We're ready. Well, why did you wait so long before you got married? I was thinking about it. <laughs> Looks like a good decision. Yes, it's all right. Why did you choose an American rather than an English girl, Paul? I happen to like this one. <laughs> nationality. Oh, like it wasn't the nationality that swayed me, you know. What was it? The girl herself. <laughs> How did you get him? Thousands, millions of girls all over the world have been trying to get him for years. How did you get him? No comment. <laughs> How did he get? How did she get you? Persuasion, you know, she was persuading. Yeah, gentle persuasion. But Paul's wedding day was also a big day for George and Patty, albeit for very different reasons. Beatles assistant Neil Aspinall explains. George was in my office, and Patty rang saying that um, Sergeant Pilcher, as that was his name, right, um, was swarming all over the house at um, Inisha. And George said to me, well, what should I do? You know, what should I tell Patty over this conversation? And I said, well, have you got this stuff? They'll just tell them where it is, George, because they'll find it anyway, you know? Save yourself a lot of hassles, you know? And uh, he said, well, he had a bit of grass, maybe a bit of hash in a, in a box on the, the mantelpiece, right? So he, he rang Patty and uh, told her to, to tell him where it was, you know? By which time they'd found a, a chunk this big in a boot in his wardrobe. You know, Sergeant Pilcher was gaining great notoriety of just busting pop stars, you know, besides George and Mick and Keith and John, and <laughs> always was the same cop. Nobody realized, you know, nobody put two and two together. What happened was there was the, the kind of social or pecking order that was in the pop world and the drug squad decided to go around. I mean, this fella thought he was Oliver Cromwell, so he decided to go around and uh, clean up what was going on. And he, they busted Donovan first. You know, every, anybody who was in England at that time will remember they, they bust Donovan, and they, then they bust the Rolling Stones, and they worked their way up, and then they busted John and Yoko and me. Just like John and Yoko, even though the drugs confiscated from George and Patty's house was not theirs, they both pleaded guilty to the possession charge and were fined £500 plus costs and were placed on a year's probation. With the Beatles' drug habits known publicly for some time, it would have been pointless to try to defend the charges. The notorious Detective Sergeant Norman Pilcher, Buster of the Stars, ended up in disgrace when he was imprisoned for perjury. While Pilcher's reputation for allegedly planting drugs has been widely lampooned, from Monty Python to the Ruttles, it's just possible that John's Semolina Pilchard line from I Am The Walrus is a veiled reference to the said Officer Pilcher. Paul, however, was not the only Beatle to marry in March 1969. We wanted to get married on the Cross Channel Ferry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the romantic part when we went to Southampton 
and then we couldn't get on because she wasn't English and she couldn't get that day visa to go across and they said anyway you can't get married the captain's not allowed to do it anymore so we were in Paris and we were calling Peter Brown and said we want to get married where can we go and he called back and said Gibraltar's the only place so okay let's go and we went there it was beautiful having flown to Paris on the 16th of March where they spent a few days John Lennon and Yoko Ono then flew to Gibraltar on the 20th and, like Paul only a week earlier, married in a quiet civil ceremony. Within a couple of hours, the newlyweds had flown back to Paris, where, predictably, the news spread quickly. Wedding for John Lennon of the Beatles and his Japanese girlfriend, Yoko Ono, the 34-year-old artist and composer. They were married at 8.30 this morning in a local register office. They'd flown in specially from Paris in a private jet plane. John told reporters, we chose Gibraltar because it's quiet, British and friendly. Beatle John Lennon today married his Japanese girlfriend Yoko Ono in a jet Gibraltar registry office. The news of the wedding came as a surprise to most people, including the three other Beatles. After flying from Paris at 8.30 this morning, they were on the rock for breakfast. Then the ceremony took place immediately, witnessed by photographer David Nutter and Mr. Peter Brown, the Beatles' personal assistant. That's why they chose Gibraltar. Lennon said it was quite British and friendly. However, they didn't intend to honeymoon there. So, from Paris to the Amsterdam Hilton, where the unorthodox couple took an unorthodox approach to their honeymoon. Could we talk about what you're doing at the moment? Yes, um, this is two events combined, like, all happening with the one is bed piece, but they know we sell P-I-E-T, and hair piece. Bed piece is, we're going to stay in bed for seven days, sort of, instead of having a private holiday. It's a private protest. For the violence that's going in the world. To say, uh... You saw that he said maybe more let's stay in bed for And grow your hair. But peace, so let, it, let it grow till uh, peace comes. So this is part of your honeymoon? Yes. Yes, yes. How are you enjoying married life? It's beautiful, now. And you're going to stay in bed in Amsterdam for seven days. Are you not going out of the hotel? No, no, no. I mean, that's what some guy was asking us before, why should we? they work and we have a good time? It's quite hard to stay in bed for seven days. I, I did it in India and it's pretty hard. So we're doing it and we think we're doing it for world peace, you know, and we believe that. And also it's a joke. Well, I, I hope you're comfortable. We are actually, it's very comfortable. Having moved on to Vienna, John and Yoko upped the ante by holding a press conference for a somewhat bemused European media from inside what appeared to be a very large white bag, which was in fact a bedsheet tied together. Everybody in, please. <laughs> Yes, uh, as soon as they like, you know, normal procedure. Any questions, please? Okay, could you please be so kind when you have questions, ask them in English. John has been in Hamburg and he knows German a little, but Could not too much. Could you come out? No. Why not? Because this is a bag event. Total communication. Don't you think it's a little bit out of fashion what you do? Uh, <laughs> do you think it's a fashion to stay in a bag? What is it? It's total communication. What is total communication? An invention of John Lennon and Yoko Ono? Or is it no, no, it exists. And we're showing you a, a one, one example of total communication. Uh, this is another peace protest, by the way. Yes, it's a peace bag, bag peace. This is the first announcement to the world of the bagism. Yes. And, uh, we decided to make the announcement of bagism in Vienna. By God, why? <laughs> because uh, when we were in Amsterdam doing bed peace, halfway through the week, we realized, uh, we sort of realized a tag to put on what we were doing, which makes it easier for us and you to recognize what we're doing by calling it bagism. That means that if we have something to say or anybody has something to say, they can communicate from one room to another and not confuse you with what color your skin is or how, many, uh, how long your hair's grown or how many pimples you've got. How long is your hair? Uh, you have to guess. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not important. It's only what I say that uh, we're here for. Well, how, how could you prove that you are John Lennon? I don't have to. I'm here just to talk about peace. It doesn't matter who I am. 
How about the statement Ringo Starr made that you'll never go to a theater in public again? Well, all the Beatles made that statement two years ago, but uh, I can say I'd, I'd prefer the Beatles to come out of their box and come out of their bag, as it were, and do another tour. But I'll have to talk to Ringo about that and see how he feels, you know. A few months back, I think it was probably when Ringo was making the film, that George, Paul and I were discussing whether to come out on the road again. And we sort of were inclined to come out if we could get some groovy show together, maybe take Apple on the road or something. Yeah. And I think perhaps it was a lack of communication between us and Ringo there. Yeah. We did seven days press conference for peace in which we donated one week of our two-week holiday for world peace. Now, a lot of cynics had said, oh, it's easy to sit in bed for seven days, but I'd like some of them to try it, even if they do it for other reasons than world peace, and talk for seven days about peace. All we're saying is give peace a chance. John captured the experience of his wedding and honeymoon in a song which was set to become the Beatles' next single, and as such, needed a very quick turnaround for its recording. I started writing it in Paris while we were on our honeymoon, you know. Just previous to getting married, I started it. I finished off in England when I got back from Amsterdam bedding. It's just telling a story, like, that's why I call it ballad, like old English ballads or folk music. You know, a bit of news, local news, you know and the bit about crucifixion is they're going to crucify all of us, you know. I don't have to sing. Some people seem to want it so they can take it literally. They're going to crucify you, me, and everyone, and we're all one, and I've already said it in Walrus. Christ, you know, it ain't easy. No, nobody knows better than you how hard it can be. With Ringo still away filming The Magic Christian and George doing a spot of house hunting, it fell to John and Paul to record the single, which was achieved in a single session on the 14th of April, 1969. Listen out for some amusing clues in the pre-song chatter that John and Paul are the only Beatles in the studio. Okay. It got a bit faster, Ringo. <laughs> okay, George. Okay. Dockets of Hampton Trying to get to Holland or France The man in the Mac says You've got to go back You know they didn't even give us a chance Christ, you know it ain't easy You know how hard it can be The way things are going They're gonna crucify me Made the plane into Paris Honeymooning down by the Seine Peter Brown called to say You can make it okay You can get married in Gibraltar in Spain Christ, you know it ain't easy You know how hard it can be The way things are going They're gonna crucify me Damn Hilton Talking in our beds for a week The newspaper said Say what you're doing in bed I said we're only trying to get us some peace Christ, you know it ain't easy You know how hard it can be The way things are going They're gonna crucify me
it for that. The bomb, because you came out before it, that's all right. Uh, I think we listened to it. Take seven of the backing track for The Ballad of John and Yoko, featuring John on acoustic guitar and vocals and Paul on drums. Eleven takes were recorded in all, with take 10 being chosen as best, onto which Paul overdubbed his bass guitar part. Before completing the track with backing vocals and percussion, John supplied some electric guitar parts, the outro coming from a song of the Beatles' early stage repertoire. See if this rings any bells. Well, baby, 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 blue the sorrow, and I love you tomorrow, just suit you just fine. Well, baby, 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 blue the sorrow, I love you tomorrow, just suit you just fine. I can't forget the two. Johnny Burnett's Lonesome Tears in My Eyes, as recorded by the Beatles for the BBC way back in July 1963. John lifted the guitar outro note for note to round out his new track, a very quick recording by Beatles standards in 1969. The Ballad of John and Yoko raised more than a few eyebrows, not because of the story it told, but more the language that was used. The word Christ was seen as potentially offensive, something to which John was certainly attuned after his comments about Jesus in 1966 and the reaction they caused, especially in the United States. The other Beatles were also sensitive to the potential issues it could cause. Indeed, ahead of its release a couple of weeks later, John sent a handwritten memo to publicist Tony Bramwell insisting upon, and I quote, no pre-publicity especially the Christ bit. George came up to me after I'd written the lyrics or just while I was doing it and said, you should have just made it easier by saying, changing one of them to crucify us or you as well. But because the lyrics and everything happened so naturally, it sort of happened when I was half asleep and I woke up, wrote them down and they, that was it. So anything else would have been translation. So I thought, sod it, it you know. Came it came out naturally. And I thought, how many, we have said it a lot of times, we believe we're all one or interconnected. And because we did it so quickly, and then Paul and I just knocked it off one night without the other Beatles even, and it, was, it had to get out quick because it was like news, and it was a ballad of today about what us two would... So I didn't have time to do the thing like Wars, any of the other so-called songs or whatever they are. Usually there's a peer where I play around with them and push a little word in here, change a little word there. But this was just like news, you know, like you make... You, spelling mistakes in the paper the next day or 500 were dead but it was only 460 or whatever I didn't have time to to work out what other people the reaction to it really I had to just get it out John yeah yeah Tom again I'm curious one thing uh, you cut this record the Ballad of John and Yoko what message are you trying to portray in this song I'm not portraying any message I'm telling a story like newspaper you know I'm telling a story about John and Yoko and therefore about everyone, because we're all one, I am here, you are here, you are me, and we are all together. Upon its release, various places unceremoniously bleeped out or simply dropped the volume on the questionable word before allowing it on radio or television. New Zealand broadcasters, however, took a more artistically inventive approach. Standing in the dark, it's
course a new Beatle A-side needed a Beatle B-side and George was ready to go with one of the songs he'd prepared earlier just two days after John and Paul had polished off the ballad of John and Yoko. Okay what about the flip side the old brown shoe? Well that's George's song and I just dig the sound of it I haven't really got into the lyrics you know I'm getting out this old brown shoe baby I'm in love with you that's good enough for me. I want a love that's right, but right is only half of what's wrong I want a short-heard girl, sometimes worth it twice as long Now I'm stepping out this old brown shoe Escaping from this zoo Baby, I'm in love with you Recorded on the 16th of April 1969, take two of Old Brown Shoe, George's allegory for stepping out of materialism and into spirituality. With Ringo still away, Paul sat in on drums as he had done for the A-side, John playing jangle piano and George on his customary guitar. Save for an organ overdub added on the 18th, 
Old Brown Shoe was also an instant recording, with all parts completed in a single day, showing that the Beatles could still meet a deadline if they really needed to. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll continue our look at the Abbey Road sessions, including another underwater-themed classic from Ringo. Until next time... <laughs>